Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Today's guest is SNC coach Graham Morris. Graham is one of Australia's best SNC coaches. He has worked and worked with numerous athletes from numerous sports, including AFL, NRL, soccer, professional fighters. Uh, he has even worked with a lot of Irish Gaelic footballers and hurlers, and we've had some crossover with clients there. So um, that's interesting. I've known Graham for a few years now. We always get along very well. We chat about anything from rehab to SNC. He's a man who enjoys a few beers like myself. So we get, get along very well, as you will hear in this episode. Um, we spoke about running, training the skill of running and change of direction work and how he does that with his athletes, not just for conditioning, but actually improving and getting better at the skill, shoulder range of motion, rib cage motion and how that, how we or he and I think that that could affect lower body injuries like hamstring injuries and things like that and how to just see some of these, those asymmetries and maybe change them. Uh, his use of oscillatory isometrics, which you might have seen him use on Instagram. Uh, his back injury, which was, I hadn't realized it was such a big injury. And I rarely heard Graham talk about that. So it was really nice to hear him talk about his own injury and his own journey with his own injury. How that has changed his training and I suppose his life as well. His ideas on kind of systems versus principles and the different systems he's used over the wor- over the years. But hopefully not forgetting about tried and true principles along the way where his career is going. He's at, it sounds like he's at a little bit of a crossroads at the moment, so it was good to get his ideas on where that might go and where it will go. So it was a really good conversation. I really, really enjoyed it, as you'll hear. Don't forget, if you enjoy it as well, please leave a like, give it a share, subscribe. It's really important that you subscribe because I always heard that on podcasts, but now we're a new podcast. I realized that subscribing is really important because it helps us get on great guests like graham and more great guests so please subscribe and share it not just i'm not just saying it i actually want you to do it so go and leave us a five-star review subscribe and if you enjoy the episode give it a share and let us know so enjoy the episode with graham today's guest is graham morris welcome graham how are you how you doing mate thank you thanks for having me on Uh, it's a pleasure it's a pleasure man i'm looking forward to the chat we've had about 20 minutes of a chat before we started and then as soon as I tried to intro you, I couldn't talk anymore. So um, I was hoping you'd give us a, a brief background into like not, nothing crazy, but where you are at the moment, what you're doing, where you've come from, I suppose, and, um, and what's been going on. Okay. At the moment, I am in, based in Melbourne and I'd say I'm fun employed, but yeah. um, <laughs> I just finished up a contract at the AFL. We have do- I was the head of strength and conditioning for the AFL umpires. But obviously, I do my own thing on the side for a while, and um, I'm kind of looking for work. But I'm sitting on the fence whether or not I'm just going to push this private thing. But uh, look, I'm I'm a farmer's boy to be honest from the very start. Uh, I grew up on a dairy beef farm. Um, lived in Perth. Did all my uni there. I lived in London for a few years. Moved to uh, Sydney. Worked in rugby league for six seasons, and now I've swung across to Melbourne. And now I'm kind of trying to work out where my life's headed, mate. So it got me at a, a different time. <laughs> <laughs> crossroads. Is it... Um, Just a crossroads. Is it AFL you're looking, you, you'd be most interested in or are you open to anything? I'm, really? I, I'm open to any field sports. AFL, rugby league, rugby union. 
I've obviously I've been working with quite a few fighters at the moment as well, mm-hmm. which I, re- I really, really enjoy. Because what I find is with sports, one of the things that I really, really enjoy is, is winning. And um, with the fighting game, there's nothing more like if you lose, it has massive uh, ramifications. <laughs> yeah. um, and if you win, there's – so I really enjoy that, the fighting aspect, because it means more be when someone's trying to knock your head off yeah. um, and, th- and someone gets to win. But yeah. no, uh, yeah. Uh, probably team sports, but if not, I'll go down the same route I'm doing at the moment, the private thing at the moment, which, um, as you know, it gives you a, quite a high quality of life and the freedom to do your things. Yeah. And I think more and more people are looking down this road at the moment. So I'm not – either way, I'm okay with what's going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The winning stuff is like I get to – I I – privately like you can get that buzz privately as well obviously with your fighters you're getting that buzz but it it is something that's hard to replace when like you have been now for me i would be much smaller part of someone's an athlete's journey like than than you would be let's say i'm just rehabbing them and then setting them setting them back into the wild but like when i know when i'm watching tv and there's an athlete there that i've worked with i'm so much more invested i'm like it's so exciting like I haven't worked in team sports for a couple of years, just more consulting stuff. But yeah, I do miss the game day and and like being nervous on the sideline and watching the watching the boys play and stuff like that. It's it's, it's very exciting. Yeah, but it also it's it's quite stressful when you have a few losses. Someone gets hurt and people are pointing fingers at you. Yeah, they're never <laughs> fit enough when they when they when they lose. It's always a fitness issue. Never yeah, tactical, well, technical, anything else. Yeah, when you're dropping the footy and you. You're causing all these um, turnovers, and all you're doing is defending. It's the it's the S and C, yeah, uh, coach's fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in Ireland, when the team like whatever team wins the All Ireland final in hurling or football that year, the S and C coach is like plastered all over the newspaper for the next six months or for the next year. He's the new thing. Like every team yeah. wants to get his program or or whatever because they just put down winning versus losing a lot of the time. To that team was the fittest team in Ireland. And I, actually, I work with quite a few Gaelic footballers, even a few hurlers and stuff like that. And sometimes they send through, I won't say what clubs they work for, but sometimes they send me through some of the fitness and what they do. It's crazy how much fitness they do. I'm like, yeah. the volume's massive. And I'm like, oh, no, we can cut back there. Like in the off-season, I'll cut it way back. And I'm like, let's just focus on these things because um, you do, I don't think you need that much work, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. I, def- I think sometimes it gets – there's a bit of a um, – Compared to the game demands, you probably don't need that much volume. Yeah. 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 I think so too. If you came to Ireland, you'd get a job, no problem. Yeah. How did, how, how, did that, how did that come over? How did that happen with, uh, with the GA players? I, I have no idea, mate. I, I have no idea. I, I think it might be because I, I wrote quite a few articles in the past for, for Key's website. Yeah. Maybe they like, maybe the Irish like the Euros and like the, um, they buy my programs off um, Aussie dollars. Yeah. They're like, oh, this is cheap ads. <laughs> <laughs> that makes my programs in Australia expensive then. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they're doing all right, mate. Uh, yeah, they're doing okay. Um, you know what? I, I, I think one of, the, one of the strengths I think I've developed over the years is that I'm very good at managing stre- uh, stresses. The amount of um, speed work someone needs, the amount of change of direction work they need, the conditioning, the amount of gym work they need. And then I'm quite good at structuring that around because I've worked in a lot of semi professional settings and people. It's actually very, very challenging because it doesn't make sense. When you're in a full-time setting, it's easy. Oh, we do the speed first and we do the um, field work first. 
then we do the gym. But, but in, in semi-professional settings, it doesn't work like that. It's all over the shop. Mm-hmm. And one thing I, I pride myself on is like in, in this real chaotic, chaotic situation where things are really, really difficult, maybe they have to do some strength work before a field, but like, okay, we're going to put this in here, but we're going to reduce the posterior chain work. Maybe we'll hit some of that in post-training or the next day. I'm good at managing it like that. So I think guys still get their adaptations, but they can stay fresh. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where I've kind of I've got a little bit of a niche here. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it definitely makes sense. Definitely there's a niche in Ireland for that because I think they're doing yeah. too much. They're doing too much. Like club club players, not just intercounty players, but club players are doing way, way too much. And actually they put almost zero value on developing the technical skills of the game. Like you see players who are spending hours in the gym running, like running the roads and they can't solo a ball. They can't kick a ball. They can't catch a ball very well. It's, it's madness. It's madness. And and that's where they're being let down. Like hundred percent. And this, if you just focus majority of your whole stuff on technical, tactical work, a lot of times you don't, you know, people don't realize how much strength you can get and fitness you can get from, a little bit less yeah and I, what i find is quite quite often like people actually uh they're doing so much work that the fatigue master fitness anyway um and they're just always tired so yeah. their fitness doesn't actually show yeah and quite often if you reduce that um that volume a little bit and they actually feel a lot better yeah and, and, and they actually perform better yeah so, yeah there's a that'll yeah. change that'll change now in the ga i think because the team who won it this year that won gaelic football tyrone they were obviously incredibly fit, incredibly strong, incredibly well conditioned. Don't get me wrong, but every single player on the field looked like they could play in any position and mm. their skills were unbelievable. And basically they were so well drilled, like they, they played as a unit. Every player was really comfortable on the ball and they just sucked the life out of the opposition. And the opposition, Mayo, were probably as fit, like they're considered one of the fittest teams in Ireland, but they just go 100 miles an hour from the start. And Tyrone just completely sucked the life out of them. So I think hopefully that's a lesson for people. Well, at the end of the day, if you're put in a position that where you're chasing and you're not putting your probably you're not doing your game plan, is that you're gonna it's gonna create fatigue. Yeah. And generally the the, the team that you know technically more skillful side that plays to their game plan and can put their game plan on the other team, they're always gonna look fitter. Yeah. Because they're making less mistakes and they're putting other teams into positions that they're, they're vulnerable, which saps energy. So, yeah. And they have the ball more. 100%. And yeah. when you can run a lot more when you have the ball versus when you're trying oh, to mate. chase it, it breaks your heart. It's much more fun attacking, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you have a present, a big presentation coming up, I hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting for the Track and Football Consortium. Is Consortium? I'm not Consortium. Sure. Consortium, there you go. I've never yeah. been good with... Um, I struggle speaking English, mate. So me either. Me um, too. When when is that? <laughs> well, I think it's it's all going to be online. Okay. So yeah. I'm starting to put it together now, actually. Yeah. I've got a few interesting things to, to put together. I'm just going to talk about. I think it's going to be. I haven't given a topic, but I'm probably going to blend in some field-based stuff with some gym work. Yeah. For team sports scenarios, because what I find is is that you don't actually have a whole a lot of time to increase people's speed on the field because obviously a lot of the time spent um, in specific skill sessions. So 
how how do I implement that? And then also how am I trying to combine certain things in the gym to combine that? Yeah. So we get we get the most out of that because at the end of the day, it's a it's a running based most team sports are running based sport. So I put a massive premium on the ability of guys to run and be quick and move in multi directions. Yeah. Well, efficiency. Well, uh, that's what I wanted to mostly chat to you about, I suppose, is like introducing. So an, let's say you have an athlete that has been playing sport his whole life, running his or her own, whole life, but now you're working with them. And like, let's presume they've done a little bit in the gym. They're aware of their body a little bit, but you're going to start to actually implement some running work separate to the sport itself. Like how, yeah. how, how does that, what does that look like? Where do you start? Cause like, I'm particularly interested in that because obviously that's, that's a stage in the rehab process as well, I suppose is, is reintroducing that running. And my, yeah. one of my big things is like, not just reintroducing the running as exposure to running, but actually using it as an opportunity to improve technique and all of, all yeah. of that stuff. So I think that's a big thing that is rarely talked about because I think people actually believe you can't improve technique, but I yeah. think you can improve technique, yeah. but, uh, especially if someone hasn't ever practiced it much before. But um, where does that start? What does that look like for, your, for you or your, your athlete? Yeah, I mean, to start with, like, I mean, it's a pretty complex topic, but yeah, <laughs> I'd say, yeah, like, it's, yeah, I just really work on the basics to begin with. I like to separate things into basic acceleration and then and max velocity. I try to work to a technical model. Now, with that being said, it's quite often, you know, a lot of these acceleration positions aren't actually going to occur in, in a team sport scenario because quite often they're upright anyway and then they're accelerating an upright position. But I still think that you can work back towards a, a technical model and know certain positions that are important and try and hit them within training. And I think that will transfer across. But, I mean, I do just – I start with basic drills. I, I think extensive – plyometric extensive hops that like those altus rudimentary series i think extensive hops and those type of things are really really important for um all athletes they stay in my programs year round for every athlete from a low level athlete to a high level athlete just to get, to make them more robust but also to give them a little bit more um a bit more elasticity which i think is quite important because a lot of low level people start out they've got no they don't know how to apply force into the ground yeah. so i like to different types of hops, different types of pogos, things like that, a variety of those things, just in extensive fashion to begin with. I like quite a few age rules to begin with, just basic age rules. Just got to be careful with some of the age rules. People get really, really high over their knee, which is not really specific to running. So I try and monitor that. But the thing is, because running is such a, it's more of a, what they say, a hind brain activity is happening, sprinting is happening at a fast speed. A lot of people have problems changing that technique. So with the basic drills, I think you can hit um, these positions and provide context to running. Now, for a higher elite level athlete, probably not. Maybe it doesn't have any transfer, but I think for a lower level athlete, and to be honest with you, a lot of field sport athletes move like shit, mm -hmm. and they haven't been too exposed to these lot of things, and we are talking about this before off air. They're starting to get gain a lot more popularity and all that. But I think I really like just the basic age rules to begin with, but once they, people start getting better at that, I will. I, I like the switching drills. I prefer the switching because I think athletes really struggle to learn how to switch. So the things like the booms, so just your basic A, the a skips will start being A skips with switches, mm -hmm. booms, boom, booms, A runs. But basics, 
scissor drills, even the bent leg scissor drills I like. The bent I like to do potentiation exercises. If, if it's a uh, acceleration day, I like resist, resisted work. If it's a max velocity day, I like to use wickets because at the end of the day, I'm not a track and field coach. I'm a strength and conditioning coach that's really try to learn a lot of running stuff. So if I can, I try and put athletes into use constraints so that they learn these things because, mm-hmm. and I try and use really basic cues because I hear people screaming out all these different cues and I'm just like, there's no way they can understand that. Just make it really, really simple cues and just understand that a lot of time they're not going to look perfect straight away, but athletes will actually quite often learn to self-organize and make themselves better. But if you give them too many cues, they really struggle with that. An interesting thing, actually, after I was speaking to Joel Smith, he was talking about the wicket drills. This is slightly off, off topic, but... That's okay. He was telling me about how... Well, he, he was thinking that a lot of people were focusing on too much front side mechanics. So what I did was I started timing people coming out of the wickets into flying tens, and then I switched the wickets upside down. The 15 centimeters, I switched them upside down. And guys were running through the wickets, the upside down, one tenth of a uh, second quicker through the 10 meters. And then I went back through, and I'm going to talk about this in my um, presentation, but I went back through and I was like, no, guys were running too tall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was stepping over the wickets and they weren't getting this um, hip extension because they were too tall. Mm-hmm. And then when I went over the lower wickets, all of a sudden they were in a little bit a better position for their hamstrings, uh, adductors, and their and their glutes probably the stronger position to create that hip extension. So I've, I've dropped my wickets down now to start with cones for basic level guys, and then I, now I'm turning the wickets upside down because a lot of the athletes really struggle to get – I think that's the most common problem they have is that people just dumped in anterior tilt when they run, yeah. Yeah. and then they start, they start heel striking. Yeah. So, But, yeah, basic drills, but I think the most important thing is just expose people to speed because they're going to be exposed to speed in the games, so your moles will – some people are, oh, I don't want to expose them to speed because their technique's not right, but they're going to sprint in games anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think you've got to try and get a combination of those things. So, yeah, basic drills, then supply metrics. With my max velocity work, I go from generally build-up sprints to, to more intensive stuff like fly sprints to floating sprints. With my acceleration work, they might start off with softer starts, might be a little bit easier from to, to begin with, like walk-ins and things like that because mm-hmm. there's less muscle muscular contributions. Then we might start doing more stuff from static starts if I have the strength to do that. But I think also, I think with these beginner guys, hand position is really important. Just getting their hands right. And a lot of times, if you can get their hands right, their legs will follow. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, basic cues. What, and you what, know what? what do you mean by when you say hands right? What, what does that mean? Well, a lot of people just don't know where to put their hands. <laughs> like, you know, like just, just get their hands in the right position and, and, you got some people teaching these 90, 90 degree drills, which is just absolute rubbish. Yeah. And they look like robots. Robot. Yeah. And just, yeah. And the other thing I think is really important is that, and this is stuff I've been working on this year and all the stuff that you obviously do and stuff like that. What I've come to the realization is some people will struggle improving their running technique because they don't have the options to do that. So mm-hmm. that, you know, once you can start, you know, if someone can't get into a more of a stacked position, they can't do that. You might have trouble changing that te- technique. So you've got to do some work in a gym and that. And that's when I started, you know, okay, let's work on some stacked positions and get that stack, start doing some hip shifting work. Mm-hmm. So at the start, you might try and get your obliques working, your proximal hamstrings, 
to get a, better, uh, a bit more better control there. Yeah. Then start working the hip shifting so they have this internal rotation and not like robots. Yeah. And they can get onto their stance side of their leg. So I've been trying to combine all those types of things that you have in your work with my basic running progressions. Yeah. And just keep and keeping it simple. Yeah. Um, and it changes it, doesn't it? Like, like I, people, I will, so. people will argue, right? And I understand the argument that you can, the only way you can train change running is by working on running. And like they are right. But if you're looking at someone who's running and they just do not have the options in their body, you're not giving, yeah. you're not giving, you don't want to be giving someone cues. You don't want to be giving someone rules on this is how you run. You just want to make sure that they have the options and then put the right constraint or task or a small yeah. cue or something in place. But if they don't have the option in the first place, then you can't, you're not going to change it. So exactly. I would argue I think, against people that say that you can't change that in the gym or doing a little bit of mobility work or whatever it is. Yeah. If, if it gives them an option that they don't have access to then and their brain likes it and it can practice a little bit, it absolutely can change. hundred percent. I think you need to have good control of your pelvis. Obviously a lot of people don't, don't have the ability to posterior tilt at all. People can't hip shift. They have no internal rotation. They don't have a dynamic rib cage. Um, so those type of things, I think, really, really do transfer to the field. Then I think if you're a beginning coach, use constraints to put guys into good positions. Use basic, basic cues. Dan Path always says, find the biggest virus. Like, what is the big virus? What is causing this? Because once you fix that one virus, quite often, a lot of the other things will work itself out. Yeah. And then don't over-cue and don't confuse people because quite often they'll work it out themselves. Yeah. yeah. The arm, you know, the arm stuff like that you're seeing, I wonder, is that like where their arm, the arms are all over the place? I, I wonder, is that because they don't have a dynamic rib cage? They don't have a spine. Basically, the easiest way to see this is if you see someone walking down the street and you yeah. see like arms swinging all over the place, just yeah. look at the spine and you see that it's not moving at all. And they're yeah. trying to generate that motion like distally using the arms because they're trying to make up for approximately there's no movement or voice or, or there's another one where their arms literally don't move. Uh, or, one, or one just moves. One just yeah, moves. One moves. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then what you'll find is as well is like a lot of guys, especially in like team sports, they have a lot of shoulder recos and stuff like that, shoulder reconstructions mm-hmm. and stuff. And then you'll see, you know, when you when your arm swings backwards, you need to have that internal rotation and they've got nothing there and they're really blocky. Yeah. And then and then it kind of tra- like it translates down down below. Then they start having soft tissue problems. You know, I can't prove this, yeah. but I'm like, you know, if they don't have good rotation of their of their, of their upper body, it's going to have obviously it's going to move down the chain as well. So I think it all works together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, definitely, all those things are really important. I think mm-hmm. it'll be a while um, before we can prove anything there. But like, if you look at so, like, and look, it's never going to be symmetrical. Like, not a chance. It's, and we don't even uh, want it to be symmetrical. Nothing no, of course in not. the body is symmetrical. But like, if you see an arm, a shoulder that goes into extension and like looks really good by your technical model, whatever that says, and then you see a left shoulder, let's say that never goes behind the body, almost never goes behind the body. Like, you're going to want to give it, give it that option at least. And, and, at least check in like passive range of motion or active range of motion. Can it actually get there? Because yeah. if it can't get there, then it's not that the athlete's body or the athlete's nervous system is choosing not to use it. It's that it can't use it. 
Is that so right? give it the ability, give it the sensation of being able to use that and then step back and see what happens. And I would say the vast majority of the time it will start to change. Yeah, 100% I totally agree with you. The drills on the, on the tall, running tall stuff, I wonder if it's, um, I wonder if it's that, like, okay, probably an athlete is, is maybe overextended already and now they're run, mm. trying to run a bit tall or maybe as a result of the wicket, they're landing on a more extended knee and yes. like they're, they're not generating them co-contractions then around the knee joint and they're not getting yeah. an active hip extension. So, yeah, they're not getting they're not getting as much range of motion to move over as well. Exactly. They're already in that they don't have as much space. Oh, and the other thing is, I think people are scared about they think backside mechanics is bad, but backside mechanics is not bad if you have a good lumbar pelvic control. Mm-hmm. Like you need good side backside mechanics to actually produce hip activation, right? Sorry, mm-hmm. hip extension to to come front side in the thing. But the problem is, is that a lot of athletes are coming backside with their, their pelvis tipped so far forward. And then they're having trouble on a swing phase, and then their legs clawing out and their heel striking so far ahead. Mm-hmm. But if you can just if you give them an ability to have control of that pelvis, yeah. then you know what is it? Fifteen degrees? I'm not sure. What? How much hip extension you should have? But if you measure your your athlete's uh, hip extension, it's terrible. They're nowhere near zero degrees. <laughs> not a yeah. chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. and then so it's like well. You know, if they can't, if they can't do that in a static situation, you know, yeah. I don't think it's happening in yeah. running either. I had my I had my brother in yesterday or two days ago. He's kind of back locked up a little bit, and I was just checking his his hip extension on both sides and his adduction, and like he, I was bringing him back towards hip extension, and then as soon as you feel the back go, like that's the end of the test, or the pelvis wants to spill forward, that's the end of the test. And I was like, "There's your hip extension there," and he looked down, and it was, <laughs> it was like. 25 degrees off zero and he was like he was like what the fuck like, yeah <laughs> he could not believe yeah. it and he's a, he's a good athlete yeah and like that like that's not like i would say a lot of athletes are would test like that they do test like that mm-hmm. but like it just helps you understand why you're seeing what you're seeing when they when they actually go and run you know and then you test the uh, hip internal rotation i mean like it's non-existent mm-hmm. um, and i see that all the time mm-hmm. and then you're like well how are you loading your glutes at mid stance, <laughs> yeah, and, well, and they, don't, talk, they don't need uh, much, but they need some. Yeah, I remember I messaged you about that, and then these are the guys that all use their, their back extensors, right, to to run. Yeah, and when people start using their backs when they're running, that's when I start getting worried about hamstring problems as well. Yeah, because when people start complaining about their backs, I'm like, oh, here we go. You know, especially pre-seasons, guys start running heaps, running heaps. Yeah, on my back, you're like, oh no, hammy's coming. Yeah, a just, tight back is is a like you, yeah. it's a red flag. You need to be thinking shit. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so just getting that there. Combine that. Combine that tall. Like maybe they're up up too tall. So you're teaching someone maybe to run too tall. They're probably going to have that leg like swinging miles out in front of them. Like you're saying, that back is the that back is is extending. So you have a hamstring now that's lengthening proximally and distally. Like it shouldn't be really lengthening proximally and distally at the same time, one or the other. And like, it's not hard to see why that can have a big impact on what's happening. And then you've got guys trying to improve all their numbers in the weight room, yeah, doing shit deadlifts, low bar back squats, Nordics with so much extension that it's not, I don't even know if they're training in their hamstrings. And then, you know, you're like, Oh, my hamstrings are strong. No, they're not. Your back's strong. 
mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Like I, like all the Nordics and that I see, like, I'm just like, well, why don't you do a banded Nordic, keep good shape? Yeah. I bet you can't come back up if you keep good shape. Mm-hmm. It's still an eccentric. I had someone, I had someone um, the other day tell me a physio the other day. Uh, I won't mention her name, but they were actually, let me get this right. They they were testing the athletes on a Norboard or whatever. They were testing the athlete's hamstrings because they thought they suspected a tissue injury there, but they weren't sure. So they said, we'll actually check it here. And I think they were able to check right, right side versus left side. And it showed up absolutely nothing. No change in strength, right versus left or whatever. And yeah, perfect, symmetry. Yeah. perfect symmetry or whatever, and uh, no pain, no anything like that. And they went and actually ended up. He, he was like, "No, I, I have a problem here. There's something wrong." And I think they got an MRI, and there was a tear there. But they, it turns out, he was just doing these Nordics and so much back extension that, yeah, <laughs> but he wasn't even stressing his hamstring that much. And I've used a no board on that in the past. I remember when I was at um, West Tigers a few years ago, but my two strongest guys on the Nord board actually had hamstring injuries that year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They both pulled their hammy. And I was like, but it's because when you're testing them, they're just doing anything. Anything, right? yeah. Anything to get this, this, this score. Now, yeah. I'm not saying, I don't want people to say, oh, yeah, but this and that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm mm-hmm. saying is, if you're doing these exercises and all you're doing is using your back, the hamstrings probably not as strong as, as you think they are. Yeah. And then, and then, because they're not really, you're not playing. You see this whole, oh, I don't know if we should go there. This whole knees over toasting. Like I'm looking at these positions and I'm like, they're so extended through their chest, their rib cage, and you know, so mm-hmm. much anterior tilt and they're jamming through there. I'm like, I don't, are you training what you think you're training? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but do you see I'm, many of those athletes? Do you see many of the people who go down them programs actually play field-based sports where they're opening up into max velocity yeah. and stuff like that? Probably not. Yeah, Probably sure. not. Uh, yeah. and, and like having to change direction and overcome muscle slack and stuff like that, I would say. Yeah. Probably yeah. Not. And then I think like the big thing, like I've got from some of your programs and that is just trying to get that coordination between the different tissues, the co-contractions, what you're talking about. Can you get the glute, the hamstring, the calf to fire together? And things like that. Because like... Like you do those things, you don't need it anyway, and your body's just screaming and you're shaking. You're like, this doesn't make sense. Why is this so bloody hard? But, you know, we know muscles are slaves to joint position quite a, a few times. Like if you put them in the right position, it's pretty crazy what can happen. Yeah. It just I mean, makes for- sense. Like if you want to train, if you want to train a Nordic, if you're going to lie down and do a prone hamstring curl, like a bodybuilding exercise, which I like a lot actually, it should make sense that like the machines, bodybuilders understand the machines are set up with certain ways to target a certain muscle, right? And I'm going to put stress through a certain muscle. And if I change the moment arm, if I change whatever, it's going to change how, how well I can stress that muscle. So yeah. it should make sense. If you're going to do a Nordic curl, could, should you not think about setting it up in a certain way that you're going to actually stress the hamstring, the tissue in the most amount possible? And mm. that, that should mean then that we're going to look for somewhat of a more neutral pelvis or take, put a band in, maybe use a little bit less back extensors. And that's by virtue of that, use more hamstring and strengthen yeah. it. It will humble yeah. you for a while because you can't go as deep. But like, yeah. it's nothing against the Nordic. I love Nordics, but like, yeah, 100%. that's a I, basic I, training principle. And in a day, if you're going to do something, just do it with good technique. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because... 
exercise is there to, to train certain tissues. If you're doing a shit technique, it's highly likely you're not training what you think you're training. And But the problem is I think a lot of people think that they're – a lot of people tie themselves up to the numbers that they produce in the weight room and they feel like, okay, if I get these numbers up in the weight room, I've done my job. But, you know, I think that's a disservice to your athletes because a lot of the time you're not getting the outcomes that you're after. And what we're trying to do is like use these, these, these different methods and tools to try and enhance performance. And sometimes – it might mean that your athletes are probably just lifting slightly less with good technique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's going to make a probably a more resilient, a more robust athlete, and the tissues are probably going to be stronger. You might not lift as much, but yeah, I think it's probably going to be more beneficial for the athlete. Yeah, there might be less load going through their body globally, but yeah, which might cause, which might not be what you want for like a nervous system potentiation thing or inhibition thing. Like you want as much load going through some of the time at least so that yeah. they feel that much stress on their body and the nervous system allows you to then access that another time. But like, I think you can get that from your maximum sprinting anyway. hundred percent. Let's face it. If you run with good technique, it's probably the most best hamstring strengthening exercise you can do. Yeah. Um, I think there's studies out there that show that like nothing compares to upright sprinting with good technique. Yeah. But you know, like that's not to say you can still when you, when you bucket all your different exercises and all your things you have, you have your speed work, your change direction work, you have all your the drills I like to I stole from you and all a bunch of other guys who use my warm up. I think that's like kind of servicing it. It's like having a car and you're servicing the car. You're making sure it's efficient, everything's running smoothly. And then you might do your speed and the power work where you're trying to get that exposure to what you're talking about. And then you might you might have a main lift where you do you don't care, you don't care if a technique goes out the window a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. because you're, you're trying to chase that strength there. But then on the accessories and that, I think, you know, okay, here we go. We can, maybe we can be a bit stricter with these type of things and target specific areas that we want to be strong, robust, um, resilient, um, and get certain things. It's just, just don't do that with everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. Do you think then- you still Yeah. They tr- still want like- guys to go, go after things and get strong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and their is, body, and- like, their body does need to feel that, that heavy barbell on their back. Like I think their yeah. nervous system needs to feel that. And I think that's, I, but I think people put it too much emphasis on, on getting that load through their body, like to cause an adaptation at the level of the muscle. I think it's much less about that. And I think it's, it is more about like almost de-inhibiting the nervous system. Like it's, it's, it's getting used to feeling that much load and that much stress. I think it's more about that than the tissue thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. But that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. And, but also, I think people also forget that strength's t- um, task specific as well. Mm-hmm. It's a funny story. Like when me and Kia back in the day we went to Thailand, and like I'd been more doing more Thai for probably about five, six years. And I thought I was getting it right. And I was at 105 kilos at the time. And I went, this guy's like, let's do some clinching. And he was like, probably 80 kilos. He absolutely ragdolled me, just ragdolled me. Mm-hmm. Just threw me around. Like I was like, "What's going on?" And one of my mates back in Sydney, he's had two hundred and fifty fights. Maybe mm-hmm. he's fights at 68, 70 kilos. Thai sat first fight when he was seven. He can't do a body weight split squat. Can't do a body weight split squat with any control. I just I did it with him. And I was like, "Oh my god, like this is crazy." He picks up hundred kilogram guys and throws them on their head. Like yeah. I swear to God, he dumps them on their head. 
If anything else, it just makes me think, what am I been studying all these years? I'm a fraud. <laughs> I think but, that transfer, does that transfer then make more sense in the, or is it easier to see transfer or lack of transfer sometimes? It's easier to see in, this, in the fight game maybe than field yeah. sport. Well, I think if you ever do a martial arts, what it does is I think it changes the way you view performance training in general. Because you'll see these people and a lot of them are not, are not strong. You see them lifting, they're weak. Mm-hmm. But they can throw stuff with such power and strength and they're so strong in these certain positions. And it all comes down to, you know, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches in the past have just focused on motor potential and have forgot about this technical mastery. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to have good control, rhythm, coordination, timing, synchronization, and being good at technique and all these things. And then you add the motor potential to it and that's when yeah. the magic top happens. Yeah. 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 I, I, I spent some time training with like Chinese martial arts. Now it was much more about like relaxation and stuff. They were all about, about that. And that's what I was doing it for. It wasn't for what there was no, not much expression and movement, but you did see forms like it was kicking and punching and stuff like that. But they, all they talked about was the tendons, 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 tendons. And, and like, they didn't have a good basis on like up-to-date science necessarily. It's like, these are the texts that were written 5,000 years ago or 2000 years ago. And it's all about just, energy transfer and tendons and it was yep. like we do not we do not we do not care about like having big muscles none of them had big muscles it was just all about energy transfer and tendons and i don't know what yep. that what they exactly mean by that but i can kind of see it when i see them throwing a kick or a punch yeah it doesn't matter until you got someone the equal level who's bigger <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly, then it, exactly. Then it matters then it matters but yeah at an even body weight you got a more skillful guy and a stronger guy, and at the same roughly the same body weight. Quite often, a skillful guy will win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in every in every sport, <laughs> yeah. Even like in preseason rugby, and that like the strongest guys in the gyms were weren't always or rarely were the best grapplers. Mm-hmm. Like we used to have these wrestle rooms, and like you know, a lot of the good wrestlers weren't the strongest guys in the gym. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's just about knowing these types of things. And working back to the, to the demands of the sport and working out what exercises, what's the purpose of the exercise and how are you going to transfer it across mm-hmm. and just try and tick off all these different boxes. You know, we've got some specific works going to have higher transfer. Um, we've still got these, these weight room things that try and make us more robust, more resilient. Other exercises are going to give us movement options and make us feel better. That's, that's another thing. Like I went to Michael Dango's gym probably three, four years ago and I remember speaking to him. He's just like, yeah, you just got to make athletes feel good. And I was like, I thought about it. And I was like, you know, that's crazy. Like when, when my body feels good, I always perform at my best as well. Like when you feel good, you play good quite yeah. often. Because when you feel good, you actually get some quality training in. You start stacking up those hours and hours and hours. So just, just I think, yeah, that's keeping guys, as Fergus Connolly says, you know, there's a technical, tactical, uh, physiological, psychological, but it's all underpinned by health. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah. I had a client the other day who was a trainer and he was, he's trying to get back to playing football, uh, soccer, football. We, I call it soccer. What would you call it? Football soccer. or soccer? Soccer as well. Yeah. It's soccer for you yeah. as well. But, uh, he's, he's been doing four weightlifting sessions a week and he's trying to train once a week, then soccer and play one game a weekend, I think as well. And he was getting some niggles and was feeling like crap. I was like, you just need to do two two weightlifting sessions cut out two sessions and like that's one of my biggest tricks with a client is like how much are you doing just do a bit less 
and they'll just yeah. they'll probably feel good. Especially like in season. Like now, look, that will oh. that might catch up with me at some stage as well, where actually they are losing strength, but I think you yeah. can maintain a hell of a lot and gain more with two sessions a week in the gym. You can you can yeah. easily gain more. Well, I've got I've got a soccer athlete at the moment because we were stuck in lockdown for so long and they weren't sure they're gonna go back to season. And he plays semi-professional and like we got during that period we did a heap of work. And he's just like, I'm getting really fatigued um, in season because they, what they're doing is they crammed all these games in to try and get them out before the end of the year. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, just cut it all off, cut it out. Like, just try and get one session in a week and just find these small little windows. Just keep all your mobility, all your, your lower level um, drills in. And then if you have a little bit of a space, just hammer that with good quality movements, get a couple of adaptations, but don't go crazy mm-hmm. um, because you'll, you'll keep hold of all those other threads. You can keep all those things a lot longer than you think, yeah. especially the strength stuff. Yeah. Strength stays around. Like, how many people didn't lift over the lockdown period and and within a month they're nearly as strong as where they were before they went out? Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah. What happened or, or it's you back, know? or it's back to where it was within one or two sessions, and that's I would like, argue yeah. that's not even strength. That's just the skill of the movement that you're practicing. You just needed to polish up on it a little bit. And a hundred percent. And that's the scary thing is, is when people are trying to um, squeeze out their athletes, they're trying to squeeze out this last 10% of their back squad or something. And they want to, I want to go from 180 to 200, but you're not getting any adaptations to the field. All you're getting, getting better at is lifting a back squat. Yeah. Like you're just getting better coordination of doing that specific lift. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, your, 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 the, some of the oscillatory work that you're, you've been doing. Do you do that? Yeah. Do you do that more with uh, the fighters then or, or with, with everyone? Uh, I do it with my online consult, my online clients. I've never done it in a team sport setting. Uh, I do a lot with my fighters because, especially during, like, for example, I've got a guy now fighting for Australian title boxing next month. But with the fighters, because during the fight camp, they're doing so much training, so much sparring, and things like that, that I try and reduce a lot of the eccentric load on their body just to create, just try and reduce the soreness. So I put a bit of this oscillatory work in and Look, I can't prove it. I can't, I can't prove it. I don't have studies now, but they just feel good. They, they think it makes them feel really good. And I think it's such like I think that relaxation, that, that turning muscles on and off is really, really important. And I think, you know, what's the what's the Russian scientist? What's his name? Carl talked about it in his triphasic um, book. Matt Matt or Mativev. Yeah, Matt or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like five stages. Sometimes all that Russian stuff, I'm like, where did I get this from? But it sounds cool. (laughs) It sounds cool. There's like five Russian guys probably back from back then that like pretty much up until five years ago, every single person referenced them for every single thing. And like, and they had no, John Coyley actually trashes it. Like it's like their, their training theory was it's, it's all, it doesn't exist. Like it's, it's, it's based on science. That's like, when you look into the science, it's like bullshit, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's just, it's a, yeah. All it's models. Just, uh, yeah, not exactly. Complete. Exactly. Um, but it's the same, it's the same as um, training residuals. I'm like, Oh, bit like strength 30 plus something days, speed seven. Something. I'm like, that sounds cool. I've always quoted it, but I don't know if it's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, so they talk about the, the, what separates the high, the great, great athletes from the higher level athletes is the ability to relax. And I play, I just played around with this stuff. And the, the athletes always say, I feel really good. Um, I feel sharper. When I'm hitting, I feel more snap and things like that. And I also think it's just a different stimulus as well. Yeah. It, it, 
And then sometimes I also wonder, is it because I'm reducing some of the load on, and maybe it's just that reduction in load is, is, is creating more um, strength gains or more mm-hmm. better nervous system gains or something like that. Mm-hmm. But if you ever do, if you've never tried it, I suggest people just have a crack at it in a warm-up and then see what happens to the rest, rest of their session. See well, how it feels. Well, so, so if someone hasn't tried it before, give them, a, give them an exercise that they could do and how they could do it. Uh, like maybe you can, I, I tend to use it more in my um, in my accessory movements, but mm-hmm. like you can, I like to use it in my accessory movements. But what I'm saying is, if you've never done it before, you can do it as in a, um, as a warm up mm-hmm. to your main main. But I like oscill- I like in, oscillating. A, in in a split squat. So or like oscillate, yeah, I like yeah. oscillating split squat. More of a split squats, RDLs. I've done double hip thrusters. Also, I like your the leg the foam roller one, oscillating mm-hmm. leg curl for that. Mm-hmm. The ankle pump it. one, where you just pump the ankle in and out, in, in hamstring bridge, all that stuff. Like I've even done on split squat calf raises, faster yep. you can go, things like yep. that. Yeah, the heel it's, taps, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, and even like um, that one where I do a real elevated split squat, and you're trying to tap up on the on the box, and you get that foot glute connection. Mm-hmm. It just it just opens up your body to different I think experiences as well, and you're like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah, I do a lot of that work with in the range. Again, I don't know, like, there's no study for this, and like people sometimes slate me for some of that stuff, but mm. I don't really care because it works. But if someone has, let's say, knee pain in a certain range, like when I go into that amount of flexion, I start to get that's when it's sore. Like I'll do oscillating a lot, a lot of oscillating work just short of that range. And mm-hmm. for some reason that seems that now maybe it's just a, like, maybe it's just a, like a novel stimulus and then that allows them to move through the full range afterwards. But, yeah. or maybe it's doing something to, I don't know, like the muscle spindles are doing something to something, but like, it seems to help when they just oscillate and like, but also regardless of that, like it, it will absolutely tear the shit out of someone's muscle like burn the hell out of them (laughs) and like that's a nice feeling for people yeah and and people i think people i need to understand it's like this is not the whole program it's only a small part of your program Mm -hmm. but you know what i've been trialing during the lockdown because i'm i'm i don't have a when i train i don't have a program i just go into the gym i just do whatever i feel like that day yeah and i've been doing that for like three four years because i just did so much when i was younger now i just like i love kickboxing and I love just playing around with different things. And I've kind of used myself as a guinea pig. But throughout the lockdown period, you know, people, I, I started just um, experimenting. You know your single leg on your um, membership site, that the single leg hip thruster, where you just go one inch of hip extension. Uh, the single leg hip thruster. So you're at the top. Oh, so yeah, 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 yeah. And all you're doing is just turning your glute on and turning it off. Yes. So yeah. I started finishing finishing my sessions just like dropping that one inch. Yeah, in the gl- like, in the glute class, that one where you go yeah, yeah, where yeah, you yeah, go yeah. up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what I was doing was I was finishing my sessions by just dropping that two inches and then trying to turn my glute on as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. Then I relax it, try and turn as quick as possible. And you know how people do the 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 long duration split squats and you're trying to squeeze yeah in people trying to hold them for like crazy amount of time. Mm-hmm. What I was doing was I was just playing around with those in the position and I was just squeezing, turning my body on and turning it off. Boom, boom, boom. But I'd only do it like 20 times. Mm-hmm. And I was getting that hamstring and the, and the 
the back leg, everything, everything was fine. I was just turning it on, turning it off. And my body felt pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, I was doing it three times, three, four times a week, just those two movements at the end of my session. Yeah. And I was just playing around with it. And I was like in these ISO positions where I was just like turning it on, turning it off. I don't know. I was like walking around like after I did those ones, I was like, I was walking around like, what's going on here? Yeah. I was kind of, I felt like walking around like Conor McGregor. Yeah. Um, but that's what but you start walking like Conor McGregor when like with the, with the hip thrust one for anyone who, it's, it's simple. What Graham is saying is basically go up into like, so shoulders are on a bench, go up into a hip thrust, a regular hip thrust on a single leg, I think, or you could, maybe you were doing double. But I was doing single, yeah. Single. I would prefer single. And then he's just going up to the very top, squeeze, getting the maximum squeeze out of a glute and then letting it yeah. off an inch. And that's kind of, we were doing two or three inches of, of that range. Yeah. But you're probably getting, when you, when you actually are deliberate with that, you're going to get a little bit more hip extension. And when you get more hip extension, you get more arm swing. That's what happens. <laughs> so you're, that's what you're wanting. Like Conor McGregor. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, I told you, I remember I told you a story about your, that pronation, um, supination exercise. Mm-hmm. Tell me because I was going to ask you about, so, so you have it, you've had a, a fairly big injury, right? I've had um, injuries, mate. Yeah. yeah. I've but had, you've had one in particular. My mate, my, probably the main, I've had an ACL before, but the main thing that really was really debilitating, I, I, I blew out my disc when I was living in London. Believe it or not, I did Olympic lifting. Really? And I was just, yeah, I had an Olympic lifting coach back then. And I remember I was, I was cleaning like one power clean, full clean, like 130. And I remember catching it in the bottom. And I would have been butt winking like all hell, like, you know what I mean, back then. And I caught it. And I remember it just didn't feel right. And for the next month or so, I just, do you think I stopped training? No. I just kept trying to monster everything in the gym. And uh, then one day I started getting this, this, it was like touching an electric fence. And I was getting a sidecar into my foot. It's like raiding and just boom, boom. And I had to fly to Australia, from London to Australia the next day, oh. sitting on this plane. And I remember drinking about like five glasses of wine and double dropping some Valiums, just trying to knock myself out. It was like, it was a, I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Because I was like, at the time, I hadn't hurt my, my back. I hurt my back before. And I was, what's going on? Yeah. And then I didn't have time to get assessed and everything. I went back to the UK. And then, over there, I was misdiagnosed, you know, don't want to have back surgery. And all that. Probably in hindsight, I should have had back surgery straight away because I lost a lot of um, a lot of strength in my leg. I was limping around. I lost, had a lot of muscle wastage. Mm-hmm. And that was for about two years. And then that was probably 2009. Then I come back here. I had another person assess it over here. So I end, end up, basically end up, end up having probably three years later, an L5S1 microdiscotomy. And they cleaned it, I cleaned the disc up and the nerve wasn't touching anymore. But they said, listen, you got scarring of the nerve. Which leg? And right, right side. My left, my left leg. Left leg, yeah. Yeah. So I had I still got slight ting, ting, tingling now, but yeah. my foot was tingling for 10 years. Yeah. Right. And uh, did they I mean, did they think that you did the surgeon think that if you got that done at the time or around the time or a few months after you'd hurt it, that you would have had less. Yeah. like less less symptoms now like for instance down the leg yeah they yeah. reckon if you if i did it straight away i probably would have cleared cleared it up because i yeah. i had so much loss of uh, muscle strength at the time mm-hmm. do you know what i mean mm-hmm. um in hindsight now you know but yeah. like but other um, people but, like other people 
other people don't they go get gaining. surgery and they clean yeah. it up and all of that mm. stuff. So like, it, that's why, but you got to like, you, you do something, some big injury like that. Like you, you have to get it assessed. I mean, it's, it's worth, it's worth at least chatting to a surgeon sometimes and saying yeah. like, what, yeah. like, what's, what's the deal here? It doesn't mean people think that talk, talking to a surgeon and I'm hard yeah. on surgeons sometimes, but yeah. it, it's not a death sentence. You can just take the information they give you and walk and away decision. Yeah, and make a decision. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, I wish I, I wish I did that. Anyways, but post surgery and that, I remember I started feeling shit again a year later. Like less than a year later, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have surgery again. Mm-hmm. And I remember going seeing another surgeon and they're looking at my scans and I'm like, it's not, it's nothing touching. It's just the the, the, the nerve scarred. And that's when I took started. My, my mate was a physio. I was like, just start trying kickbox or something with me. See if it makes it feel better. <laughs> he goes, this is not really my physio because this is try it, right? And actually, and this is around about the time when I'd read all the Stuart McGill books and everything. I was I was shit scared of like bending over. I was like 45, yeah. I was going to lumbar flex my back. My, my body was going to explode, right? Yeah. So I built up. Don't, don't this, read his books. <laughs> and that's not what I'm saying, but but I was like, <laughs> but I was scared. I was like, I thought that you know everything was about bracing. Mm-hmm. That's what, it's, know, it's, what, it's what I'm saying not what you're saying oh, you I'm are saying. Oh, you. <laughs> it's like everything was about bracing and I, I was like I can't bend over I can't do these I can't do these things and my body just had this like in my head that I couldn't do these things mm-hmm. and without a doubt the stuff that's made the, the most benefit is all the breathing stuff of, of because like this year I ended up doing the when I did all your um, the lower body basic stuff first I knew I was feeling good, but I didn't know the the, the reason Boy, behind like, all this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I was like, and me as a, as a coach, and I'm really neurotic about these things. I was like, I have to learn. I have to know this stuff, right? Because yeah. so I ended up doing that Connor Harris biomechanics course. I'm doing the Alex Effers one, and obviously now I'm a member in your site, and I'm starting to get my head around these things. And it's made my like it's just changed. It's looking through this gait and respiration model has really changed the way I look at things because. I was jammed like this, like I was ribbed up like this. My back extensors were on all day. If I look at through photos of me standing kickboxing, my toes were gripping into the floor. My mm-hmm. center of mass was so far forward. Like, and I was just putting so much pressure yeah. on my low back, right? And yeah. then, then I started getting like facet joint pain and stuff like that. Yeah. And then so the McGill like, stuff, the McGill theories there and, and stuff like that is, so you need to train your core more. Right. Mm. So you need to break, learn to brace more and fight the tension on your back with more tension in your front, more tension on your sides. And what ends up happening? Like you haven't changed your position. You haven't changed your movement options. You've just ended up squeezing more muscles. So you're mm. getting literally getting squeezed from front to back, from side to side, and you're just getting co-contractions everywhere. And that is when you're going down a bad path. So like you can't fight tension with tension. You have to learn to just open things up and relax a bit. Yeah, and I think all the breathing stuff and like just getting my rib cage working and um didn't realize how weak my bloody hamstrings were, as we were talking about before. Like I remember I used to have a sit and reach of plus 30 centimeters. Mm-hmm. Right? But you know, I thought my hamstrings were strong, but then I'd lay my back and do a supine like nine degree hamstring bridge and I was weak. It's so bloody weak. My hamstrings are weak. Yeah. Um, my back was doing everything, you know. Even like single leg hip thrusters, I'd do them, but I'd just be doing it with my chest up. And then when I started getting this lumbar pelvic control, taking the muscles through full range of motion, started regaining some um some some internal rotation through my hips. 
my back's never felt better. Touch wood. Like, mm-hmm. so it never felt better. Yeah. Like, I still had that uh, that loss of strength in my leg. Yeah. But I compensate and I work around that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't run, run long distances, but I'll run, I'll run stairs. I kickbox every day. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll have maybe I'll have a punk I fight one stage. I'm getting a bit old, but I wouldn't mind having a crack. I'll see how I go. I think you should I go gotta, for it. <laughs> yeah, I just gotta find a coach at hand. That's easy for me to say, by the way. No, I, th- I think I you gotta, should go. I think you should get in the ring. I want to have a crack. <laughs> I'm 30 when I'm 39 next year, 38 now, but I just need to find a good coach that handpicks a good opponent that I can mm-hmm. just bash on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Just don't don't find anyone that can beat me up. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but but like so, but I'll I'll kickbox every day, like maybe sometimes twice a day, and I know what drills now work for me. I do a few some breathing stuff every now and then, uh, some hip shifting exercises, the ninety ninety stuff, mm-hmm. and like yeah. So as I said before, it's like, it's like having a service on your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what how, how's the how's the springiness like when you're when you're sparring with someone and you're kind of in and out and stuff like that through the through the feet then or through the left foot in particular. Well, it's funny. Like, if my back's jammed up and I'm not feeling good, I'm stiff. Yeah. I'll lose. I'll lose that, that, that control of my foot. Yeah. It won't be as strong. I'll feel slow and sluggish. Yeah. But when my when I'm freed up and I feel good, my legs are a lot stronger. Yeah. And I actually ha- have a bit more pop. But it's definitely weaker on the left side. But the way I've just developed my my kind of my style, I work around that. Yeah. 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 You know what that is like. Well, boy, I think that is 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 the, when you start to see more and more co-contractions proximally, so around the spine, around the, around the, the center of the body, I think you start to see less distally. So like the body starts to, prote- like co-contractions are, are ultimately a protective mechanism first and foremost to, to when forces are coming into my body, like I'm going to protect myself and move for, for the most part, it wants to protect the center of the body. That's why someone hurts their back and they just end up bracing up, bracing up completely. And that makes sense for the first week or two weeks or however amount of time, like it makes sense that your body would just brace and it's going to protect you. So when you start to see someone create co-contractions proximally, like everywhere, bracing for everything, it's a very good chance that they can't actually create them distally. So through the foot and the ankle and, and like around the knee and all of that stuff, because if they could, there's two ways of looking at it. it. Like if they could, that force would be dissipated before it comes up into the center of the body. All that vibration is dissipated. It's shared. If they can't create that distally, then they're going to have to create approximately. So there's two ways of looking at it. I could get you to relax your back relax your ribs, get your pelvis moving. And that might force the body to start to create them co-contractions distally. Or I could create, help you create co-contractions distally. And that might help your back actually relax because your body understands now I can actually manage the forces when my foot hits the floor, I can manage that better. So I don't need to brace my upper body as much. Or what I tend to do is just give people both of those things. So teach them to relax around the spine more and teach them to be stronger and, and whatever, get some of them co-contractions around, around the lower limbs. So yeah, um, I didn't mean to go off on a soliloquy. No, you're right. There, and and, and I, I've also had that, that, that um, knee reconstruction. I remember, remember I messaged you and I did that, the pronation supination drill. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think my, I don't know if the VMO exists, but. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Love. So <laughs> my, my best is medialis. I don't. I haven't felt it work for for a long, long time, right? Yeah. So when I was doing that 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 supination pronation drill, 
all of a sudden, my whole my, my whole knee was just shaking when I was doing it. Like it was going to smash this massive spasm. And I think I did it like 30 times. And then I was like, I'm time to go to get a coffee. And I, I sat down, my knee started aching. Yeah. Right? And I remember I messaged, I thought, what have I done? I've, I've fucked myself here. I don't know what I've done here. Like, right? I couldn't walk. Yeah. So then I went, after five minutes, I went to go get a coffee. And I was like, eh. like I was like, just struggling to go down the street. And then 10 minutes later, all of a sudden, my, my knee just relaxed. And I was like, it's never moved like this before. And I, was, I think you said it's because you'd never had that tibial internal rotation or something. Like, all of a sudden, my, my, I, felt, I felt so much. It was crazy, man. It blew my mind. I thought I was in trouble for a second. Then I mean, yeah. everything just released and I felt good. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what I talk about. Like, when I, you know, you see me talking about like the shin proximally going forward, distally coming backwards as I bend my knee. Gary Ward talks about that obviously very well, but the, and, and like, so the, the shin doing like, uh, the shin doing an anterior tilt as you bend your knee and the femur doing a posterior tilt as you bend your knee, that might not make sense to people. And, and then there's rotations happening. So like you've done a shit ton of squats, split squats, where you go into full deep knee flexion and all of this stuff are close to full knee flexion and loaded it up heavy. And you never felt your, your VMO and you never felt your knee moving. It like that was a simple knee bend where you bend it 15 yeah. degrees forward and back. And that's why it's, it's because those muscles around the knee are in a position to decelerate rotation and rotation. Isn't the femur and the tibia moving in the same speed. Like if they both move in together, it's, there's no rotation happening at the knee. There needs to be a relative motion between the bones. And when you see that relative motion, those muscles are de decelerating that and trying to pull it back. And you basically gave your VMO a job to do for the first time in a long time. And there was, I would say the articular surface, like all that stuff inside the knee actually, actually got moving for the first time. And yeah. your bot, you go and walk, then people think simple drills like that can't transfer over to complex movements like walking or running. They absolutely can. They can and they will very quickly. Yeah, and on the way back when I was coming back in the supination on on the outer heel, my ha my hamstring was gone crazy as well. <laughs> yeah, so cool, so yeah. so cool, so yeah. cool. That's why, like, and yeah, people shitting. There's people on Instagram shitting on all different systems and stuff like that at the moment. It's just, yeah. it's just too much. Well, a small little things can help people. It's just what listen, the narrative that you use. Exactly right. Look, I think it's dangerous to get caught on one side of the system, but on on the flip side of that. We need these systems out there so we can steal a little bit of these things and put it into your own system. Like when people produce these systems, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're saying this is not the only way you train. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be this massive social media push at the moment. I don't know if it's people just thirsty for followers and that and they just want to make fun of certain things. I don't know what it's all about. But, you know, I try and take little things of each system, you know what I mean? And, and then just what, how does it benefit me? Uh, what what are the people I'm I'm dealing with? Does that fit in there? And you know, that's I think that's what training is about, right? It's finding what's useful, and it could be something could be useful for one scenario, might not be useful for another scenario. So we need these systems in place, and yeah, I think it's just the issue is is when you get caught one one side too far. Yeah, and there's no one saying yeah. no, exactly. No one's saying that. And there's a there's something out there that's like people say oh in the breathing world don't go too far down the rabbit hole and i say that too what i mean by that is go all the way down the rabbit hole if you want learn a shit ton of this stuff but what i mean is if you're in a rabbit hole 
that means you can't see anything else. You can only see what's in this hole. So when yeah. I say that, I mean, don't take your eye off everything else, but yeah. by all means, go all the way down and learn it, but make sure you are not taking your eye off anything else or everything else and understand that these are some things I can take here. But yeah. when, when people are saying, don't learn about the breathing stuff because you won't end up using it all or it's a system in itself and you need to not take your eye off the other things. Who's saying you should, you should take your eye off that and just have your clients lying on the floor all day, just breathing. No one, yeah. like, like some people are, but very few people of, of note are actually saying that. So it's yeah. a bad excuse. It's a bad response to someone saying you shouldn't learn stuff just because you're not going to use everything that's there. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time it's because people were just like, they're like, oh, people are doing this because they don't want to train hard. And that's, that's rubbish. Like, it's just, you know, you want to, you want bits and pieces of everything to try and optimize what you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you've done a good job with that, man. I really do. I really do. Where do you stand on the, on the Bosch stuff at the moment? Just with regards to systems, I suppose. You because you kind what you coined, what what was the term you coined? That, 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 that sounds funny that I'm just talking about people talking about systems, but that was just yeah, but you, yeah, but you said don't go full bosh, which is yeah, exactly yeah, what we're saying. It's not exactly like ignore I'm, everything that we're yeah, uh, that bosh and, says. Okay. So what one thing I think is that's important is that yeah, if you do go down a system what we talked about, that doesn't mean that you throw away proven techniques that'll work. Okay. And then back a few years ago, what I was seeing was everyone was just stopped lifting weights and they were just running around with certain things and all that. And on the flip side of that, you know, you might not be driving adaptation or you might not have overload, right? And then, you know, the weight room is still beneficial for like body armor and all that. And I'm sure Bosch's France probably says the same thing. I'm sure mm-hmm. he does. Mm-hmm. Okay. But some, what I was finding was people doing all these exercises and that. And I'm like, do you even know why you're doing that? Yeah. Do you know what it's for? Or did you just see it on Instagram and just do it because you thought it was cool? Yeah. And um, for example, like I think they were talking about when you do the single um the single leg clean up into a box, like you're supposed to like delay um the landing. Yeah. So you get yeah. the hip lock. Yeah. Yeah. But then everyone's just going out, bang, yeah, bang, bang. I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, you're not even doing what the exercise is built for. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah. But um it's look, people that it's people that don't I don't I, I don't I like look look I've done I've done things wrong. I've done a lot of embossed things wrong, definitely, or not as well as they should have been done, hundred percent. But it's I think it's and I don't want to say it's people that like that's that's saying us and them. It's when we don't understand where things fit into a plan, especially in the rehab process for me, like I think the Bosch stuff fits in at a certain point really, really nicely at a certain point in the rehab process. But like, I'm thinking about that from the beginning. Like if I'm thinking about a hip lock, I want to do some hip lock work at someone before I return them to running. I definitely want to do that. But like, I understand if they can't, I'm almost doing that stuff from the beginning because if they can't get a frontal plane at their pelvis, if they can't adduct or abduct their hip, then doing the hip lock work in the fancy drill is absolutely useless. It will not help them. So it's, yeah. it's understanding like where it fits in along the process. And that, I think that's where people go wrong with systems and stuff like that. They, yeah, and they can't fit it back into what they're already doing. And then I think the other thing is if you're just going fancy with all these drills, okay, if that's all you're doing, then you don't have infinity amount of time. 
you're mm-hmm. taking something else away from that to do that. So you've got to know why you're doing it. What are you taking away? Is that going to have a consequence elsewhere? And then, like, if you're doing all these drills and that, are you actually sprinting your athletes with good technique? Yeah. Because that's pretty important as well. Because I'm not – last time I checked, that's probably one of the – that's really high specificity. Yeah. Um, so you can get some pretty good transfer there. And then I think with the – a lot of people try and um, – the, 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 the speed work, they try and solve problems just with strength work in the gym. But on the flip side of that, I think we're going to botch stuff originally came out. People went anti-strength as well. Some people went down that thing. It's just like know your tools, know where they all fit in. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about before, you know, if you go down the rabbit hole of the system, just understand that other things still work out there. Yeah. Yeah. The anti-strength. I don't think you should be anti-strength. I know you shouldn't be anti-strength, but I think what Bosch has hopefully helped. Now, I am not sure about this, but I think he has hopefully helped people understand that there can be a negative transfer of training. And people understood that in the past with regards to overtraining and fatigue. So like I'm just destroying someone and now their, their sport is suffering as a result. But I think negative transfer and training comes in many forms more than just like fatigue. So there's, there's like, you can lose, you're, you're losing significant amounts of range of motion around your body. You're getting very, very stiff. You're struggling to maybe overcome muscle slack. Like you're muscling through everything. Like your, I don't know, rate of force development type of stuff actually could be getting worse as a result of you getting stronger because you're, you actually have to muscle through everything. There's so many, like the motor patterns of you, you might choose more back extension, more knee extension rather than yeah, all different things. So the negative transfer comes in different ways rather than just yeah. fatigue. But that doesn't mean strength is bad or straight, you shouldn't no. do strength work. Yeah, 100%. You just got to, yeah. It's all about the right dose of everything and how it fits into mm-hmm. play. And it probably depends on the sport as well, right? So mm-hmm. obviously, exactly, man. yeah. Exactly. I mean, also, and it also depends on people's like, training history. You know, quite a lot, quite often, like, the low-hanging fruit for like a, maybe a younger athlete is a lot of strength work. Yeah. But then the back end of that, like you might have an athlete that's like stiff, broken, injured. You know, you can just you can do some a lot lower amount of strength work and do a lot of these other things to try and mm-hmm. get guys on the pitch and play well. Yeah. Yeah. Depend on a series of factors of sport, the athlete, their their training history, their injury history, and this is always changing. And that's why it's good to have an understanding of all these different systems, so then you can choose the appropriate method to try and to get the tool or the adaptation that you're trying to get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you for maybe the last question. Yeah. When I wrote down before, what's the plan for you for like the next, what do you think in the next two to five years? But it's probably a bad time to ask that question considering you're. Yeah. Listen, ideally I'd like to work for a, a, like a, a big team event. Like that's what I want to do. You know, I hadn't really had much success here. People don't mustn't like me. Um, <laughs> I'm not really sure, but I also don't want to, I've gone down the path of this private stuff, like, but I've been sitting on the fence for a few, few years, what I want to do. So I want to make the decision pretty soon. Like if something doesn't come up there, I want to go full stream ahead because at the moment I think I, I, I need to go full steam ahead with one thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens because I've just been sitting on the fence and I've been I don't know, do you, I don't know, do you? I don't know. I don't know. Yes, like, but like, if someone, well, so, yeah, someone wants to come up with me with a good, good gig. Yeah, and I think it's really important with those things because you know I'm not a younger intern or anything like, or younger athlete that lives at home and can get paid nothing. 
Yeah, to, to it needs to be. Stage. Yeah, it needs to be. A, it needs yeah. to be a good gig for you at this stage of your career. Yeah, and it's got to be with people that I want to work with because I've seen teams where people, a lot of people, aren't happy and they're miserable. So you want to be in the right team environment, the right people around you. Um, you want people to challenge each other, push forward, and have a really good culture. If not, mate, I want to be like. I want to get my templates up and selling as many as you are, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What templates do you have at the moment? I've just got, I've just got three, three training ones. I've got like an off-season, the pre-season, and the power one. Yeah. But the off-season off one, GA players are going to be getting that. They'll be gobbling that up now over the next couple of months, I'd say. Yeah, mate. mate most of my, my buyers have all been Irish, so... Yeah. Yeah, I should. I, I need you know what? I need to come out and start doing some other work. I might put some stuff together for some fighters and things like that. I don't know. I don't know, man. I've got. I've got. Yeah, I've yeah. Been, a, been a bit been a bit rattled with the whole like lockdown thing and yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, but you'll yeah, be good. you'll be good. You'll be good. There's one thing you can't replace, like is is like expertise and and integrity. I think which you have in in abundance. So. Like you can't replace that. So no matter what you end up choosing to do or whatever, I, yeah. I have no doubt you'll be good, man. And Kiers keeps on saying, come over to the US and stay with me. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Go over and stay with him. Um, I, don't, yeah, I don't know what will happen there. But. Yeah, no, that could be dangerous for everyone, actually. Um, and then the last question, which this wasn't planned, but I asked Joel basically what three people that he had interviewed on his podcast, would he, if he was like stuck on a desert island for a week, what three coaches that he had interviewed would he would he bring with him? So I won't ask you who you've interviewed, but is there three coaches that like that you would who who would you bring to a desert island that you're like I'd love to, a week to learn from those to learn people. or is it just learning or is it, <laughs> I, it can be whatever you want. I'll leave you make the criteria. And does the desert island have rum, like in parts of the country? Yeah, it has loads of rum. Yeah. All right, I'm going with you. I'm going with <laughs> Kia. I'm going with Kia, and then I'm going to go with Dan Path. Yeah. That'd, yeah. Be, that'd, be, that'd be pretty cool. Does Dan drink cool. rum? If I'm there, he has to. <laughs> That's the rule. That's the rule on the island. <laughs> yeah. You've got to have Dan, like, don't you? I think, like, imagine being able to just spend a week with that man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be... I think he'd be one of mine as well. I think I really yeah. think so. All right, brother. What... Um, what... Is there where can people find you? I, that's another question I need to remember to ask. Oh, mate, I I've been really bad on social media lately. Just I don't know for some reason I've been off it because I got sick of looking at it. But uh, <laughs> my Instagram's Graham underscore Morris. I do have a Facebook, but I don't think I put Graham Morris Strength and Conditioning. Twitter, I can't. I'm on there. I don't even know what my feeder is. I don't really do it because people um, are probably still arguing about yeah back squats, depths, and Olympic lifting. <laughs> Yeah, benefits, and I was just like, I can't do that. Yeah, I use, I use Twitter for crypto, like for Bitcoin. It's I do, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, fucking, it's so good for that. Like, yeah. now look, there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit there, but like, you see all, you just see so much interaction there. But the S and C community, I literally are the rehab yeah. stuff, the injury stuff. It's people like, it's just so sad on Twitter. It wrecks my head. Yeah, I don't have. I, I get horse racing tips off Twitter, but yeah, yeah. Twitter yeah. is really good for like stuff like that, but not for even stuff. even stock tips because like you just want to follow the herd. It's like this is this thing's getting pumped. Let's just get in. Let's yeah. pull it out. <laughs> yeah, like literally the other day, um, did you see Elon Musk tweeted uh, a poll 
they're, everyone's on about him not paying taxes, right? This is the richest man in the world. He doesn't pay taxes. He says, I don't pay taxes because I don't have a salary. So like, I don't take a salary. I don't take any bonuses from the company. He's just richest in terms of wealth, like what his company is worth. So he put up a poll saying, should I sell, I don't know, was it like, like 20 billion worth of Tesla stock or something? Something I probably get the number wrong. And, and then I'll have to pay tax on it. So, and the, the answers were yes and no. And because of Twitter and his poll, the, it turned out to be yes, but I don't know has he sold it or announced it yet, but his Tesla stock is after do- dropping, like the, start, the stock is down 20%. <laughs> because of fucking a Twitter poll, which is like, which is those like people voting on like twenty billion dollars. Like, so that's why I love Twitter. I voted no because I have some Tesla stock, and I was like, no, if he's if he, this is going to dump on me completely now. But um, yeah, stocks is good. Financial stuff is really good on Twitter. Yeah, not back spots though. <laughs> um, yeah, man. So. Um, any, 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 any other words of wisdom for us? Are we, are we good there? No, nah, man. I don't think I have much more for you to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got much wisdom at all. This uh, we, we, we've tapped it out for the day anyway. Um, <laughs> Graham, you're a star, man. Thank you very much. Thank I appreciate you. Oh, mate, every, thank- everything you do and all that stuff. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it, mate. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome, and I'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>